Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly and co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. We're actually going to be speaking to some panelists. Brett Copeland is a VHPI executive director of a nonprofit veteran healthcare policy institute, an organization founded by veterans, healthcare providers, and journalists. Brett worked on Capitol Hill as a communications director for a labor union that represented VA employees. Also, we're joined by Lindsay uh, Church, executive director and co-founder of Minority Veterans of America. Uh, Minority Veterans of America's mission is to create belonging and advancing equity for minority veterans. This includes uh, people of color, uh, women, LGBT community, religious and non-religious minorities, and allies. MVA advocates for equality, respect, and justice for all minority veterans. Well, it is a pleasure to have both of you here. Why don't you give us a a lead-in, Lindsay? Hi. Um, thank you for ha- for having me. My name is Lindsay Church. I'm a, a Navy veteran. I served in the Navy from 2008 to 2012, uh, returned home after active duty and uh, went to college for a bit and then ended up starting um, co-founding the Minority Veterans of America. Oh, fantastic. And we have Brett on the line. He is the VHPI Executive Director. Uh, and we are so proud of the work you've been doing, Brett. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, for your service and also Brett for yours. Thank you. I'm very happy to be back. And unfortunately, you know, we don't have a ton that's positive to report. Since Uh October 1st, there's been a 24% increase in active COVID cases, especially across the Midwest. Uh, We're seeing spikes in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Western Iowa, uh, Missouri, and actually North Chicago seeing a spike at their VA health care system there as well. You know, we've, Secretary Wilkie predicted that there would be a boomerang um, after kind of the spring and summer months that we'll be seeing this increase in cases, but we still don't have the testing that we need. Um, hospitalizations are still increasing. Um, and we just, you know, it hasn't been addressed like it needs to. And unfortunately, the burden of this disease is falling on non-white Americans who are dying at hugely disproportionate rates compared to white Americans. Black, Latino, and Hispanic Americans are actually more likely to contract COVID-19, require hospitalization, and die from it. American Indians are also incredibly under or overrepresented in those uh, fatalities. Oh, yes. actually, one in every 1,020 Black Americans um, have died or have been killed from COVID-19. It's an incredible number. Oh, it, it is absolutely tragic. Um, you know, I, I sort of work in the insurance industry in my part in my spare time, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. actually, uh, you know, one of the things is that the uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services put out a report, and they said that if you are African American, you're almost four times more likely to be hospitalized. If you are of you know Hispanic or Latino descent, you are about two and a half times. If you're Asian descent, one and a half times that of the general white population. And if you are uh, with end-stage renal disease and you are uh, with medic, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, dual eligibility, you actually are 11 times more likely to be hospitalized in the general population. 
And so we, we do have more chronic disease uh, in these populations, but it, some of the problem is, is that it's never really been adequately treated because of access issues and social determinants mm-hmm. of health and such, uh, some, some things like that. But, you know, wh- how is this really affecting our veteran population? Because we know we have veterans who are being taken care of in the VA system. We have people who are veterans who are actually being taken in the traditional health care system. And then we have homeless veterans. So mm-hmm. what, what is the sort of the layout of that? How is that affecting us as a group? Well, you know, exactly what you just said. Um, you know, populations of color are they're really getting the brunt of this, and that's absolutely true for the veteran population as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more susceptible just because of their military service, the wear and tear on their bodies from service, uh, mental health conditions. There's a study that came out last week that said that people with a psychiatric diagnosis are almost 50% more likely to die after COVID-19 hospitalization. Plus toxic exposures. You know, veterans are at a very high-risk group, and um, one of the only kind of equitable healthcare systems that's happening in the private sector where a lot of these deaths are happening, but kind of the most equitable and largest healthcare uh, system that we have in the U.S. that veterans fortunately have access to is the VA. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks are waiting for relief, and luckily our veterans do have access to the VA. But if you look at the White House or Congress and even leadership at veteran uh, legacy veteran service organizations, you know, they have failed to elevate issues of veterans of color, especially health care issues. And I think that's one of the reasons why Lindsay's work at Minority Veterans of America is such a critical organization. Yeah, you know, Lindsay, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know Minority Veterans of America, uh, you founded that in 2017, and your co-founder was uh, Catherine Pratt. So, and but you began your work back in 2014 uh, through the Husky United uh, Military Veterans. So, tell us a little bit more. Why why did you start this group? Why is it so important? And what do you do? Absolutely. Um, so um, we started MBA uh, back in 2017. I was the post commander of an American Legion, um, and both of us were working or went to school at the University of Washington. We were both student veterans. We had met through um, some different work that we had been doing around the diversity committee, trying to increase um, minority veterans engaging and being a part of student veteran activities. Um, we saw early as in a smaller population um, as I, myself, I ended up being the post commander of American Legion. My first night, it was told that it was okay that I was gay, but I didn't need to talk about my wife. And the, oh, yes. this, this kind of continued um, down this route. Uh, people would, I would host meetings and people would drop racial slurs. I would host me, or I would mm. host post command meetings and women would be hit on as soon as they walked in the door. And so what I was seeing over and over again was here I was leading this post and leading this organization and I was complicit in my own oppression when I was doing so. Um, I recognized at, at some point that there, that me continue to perpetuate this organization that continues to, to deny what I need and, and continues to perpetuate harm to minority communities, I was doing the wrong thing. And so myself and Catherine Pratt, uh, Catherine is a Korean American woman veteran. I'm a white gender nonconforming woman veteran and the two of us we recognized that I was never going to understand what it felt like to live in skin that wasn't white, and she was never going to understand that what it felt like to live in a body that wasn't cisgender. But uh-huh. that what we could understand between the two of us was our mutual mutual oppression and marginalization. We could understand that in the veteran community that if we didn't find a way to come together. There were the four minority groups that we serve are veterans of color, which is 5.5 million. Uh, women veterans is 2 million. LGBTQ vets is 1 million. Religious and non-religious minorities are about 1 
1.6 million. But when you take all these together, they're small numbers by themselves, right? Like LGBTQ vets, we are about 5% of the population. But to be able to advocate for our needs, we need a greater voice than that. And the same thing for each one of our groups that we serve, that if we don't find a way to coalition build and build an intersectional movement that brings about different voices and brings different people into the fold, including allies who are here to fight with us, we're not actually going to create change. And so for us, we've always taken like a movement building rather than an organization building lens to what we do, because what we're doing is trying to create change and change doesn't come from an organization. It comes from a movement. Um, and so we did that. It started this back in 2017. Um, I, I find it very fortunate that we did what we did when we did it, because now here we are in 2020. And rather than ha- not having the tools to be able to equip and serve our community right now, We've spent the last three years building our organization so that right now is the moment that we can do the work that we do best. Um, in, in the face of COVID, you all were talking about the systemic uh, inequities towards and disparities towards people of color specifically, and we uh, have seen this even in our own work. So since we started, um, since COVID happened back in, or started back in March, we have, been, have started a COVID relief fund that we have about $100,000 to give away. We have 27000 that we've given away already. Um, we've seen almost a thousand applications and half of them have been black. Half of them have had that employed as well. We've seen a rise in this, in this need. Um, we don't, we don't, we're not healthcare ourselves. So, uh, we see the, if the after effects, the unemployment as a, as a result of COVID, the fact that, uh, black and African American, Latinx and indigenous folks have to go back as essential workers. The fact that they, that most folks don't have an opportunity to sit back and work behind their computer screen is the reason why we're seeing these numbers the way that we are. In addition, the communities that we serve are already under resourced before the pandemic. So now that the pandemic has hit, we're actually seeing worse outcomes, especially when it comes to healthcare. So VA has pivoted to uh, telehealth being their main delivery for especially mental health, if not all of their services. Well, communities that don't have computers or access to technology or cell phones cannot access a doctor that is now only doing virtual appointments. In addition, when you look at under-resourced communities, the internet access is actually way worse than in predominantly white communities that are affluent. And when you look at tribal and indigenous lands, you're also seeing that there, that there is almost no access worse than rural veterans to be able to get access to, to care on a regular day. But when you add the pandemic as an extra lens, it only gets worse. Um, so that's a little bit about what we do and a little bit about what we've seen. Sorry, I just rambled for a bit. <laughs> okay, excellent. Very, very good information. Uh, you know, we always have time for uh, like one or two callers with a very short question. If, if you want to call in, it's 773-591-1690, But, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking, you know, uh, well, I was a colonel in the military before I retired. And uh, part of the code that we, in an oath we take, both as enlisted and as off, you know, officers, is that you are supposed to uphold the Constitution. You're supposed to be fighting for those things. And we're supposed to be living ex- lives of an example of what that is supposed to be, what we would like to envision for America. Uh, we don't set the moral compass for the country. We only you know, secure the rallying pace, places for debate and discussion. And then American people vote and decide what they want this country to do. But it seems as though, as veterans, we should be living the life of what you're talking about, right? We should be recognizing these inequities and making sure that we're standing up for what's right. Absolutely. I, I know myself that I, I, when I was in the uniform, I served almost all of my time under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I think I had about three months that I wasn't under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was right at the tail end. 
I didn't have an opportunity to fight against Don't Ask, Don't Tell because my primary job and my primary mission was to uphold, the, uphold and defend the Constitution, just to your point, that the Constitution and my military's obligation was what I was, what I was most responsible for in that moment. What somebody else fought for my rights as a, as a career service member to serve and remove Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Here I am in 2017 when we started this organization and the trans ban was, was announced. It was my turn and my opportunity to fight for what was right for the Department of Defense to ensure that those folks can serve, even though we still haven't won that fight. But much to your point, like as veterans, it is our job to speak up against injustice and to fight for our country that we believe in and to continue to fight in the ways that we couldn't when we were in active duty. Yeah, I can't believe how fast time moves. We're, we're, we're coming down to the last <laughs> few minutes. I wish you would stay here all day long. But uh, one of the things that I wanted you to, to sort of address, what are some of the obstacles you've seen and what are some of the positive stories you can tell us about what your organization does and how would we contact the organization? Is there a telephone number or website? Um, absolutely. Yes, you can contact the organization. We, you can find us at minorityvets.org. There's a contact form on there. You can join the organization. You don't have to be a military veteran. We do bring in allies that are here to fight the fight with us. Um, some of the greatest things that we've seen, or at least in the past few years that we've, we've come against, is really a cultural shift is, is happening. And the pushback against that is probably one of the hardest things that we as an organization, as a community, and we see this now, other country kind of faces the same thing, is that like we have to push the needle and it's hard and it's going to get harder and people continue to push back against the needs that we clearly see from minority vets. And so for us, like we just keep pushing against that wall to say like there are unique needs here. We are not trying to separate the community. What we are trying to do is advocate for these unique needs. And that's the most important thing that we can do right now. Um, so we do anticipate that there will be will continue to be pushback because minority needs aren't always the first thing that people want to think about. But we always continue to say when you when you program and you serve the margins first, you're actually able to serve the serve the bulk of people better. Um, so that's going to be what I live and die by. Um, but uh, uh, some some success stories. I, I don't know who watches football, but if you're a Seahawks fan, we actually just had an opportunity last Saturday. We were out in Seattle. We did what's called a supply drop, and we partnered with the Seahawks and an organization that serves veterans called Fob Pope. Um, oh. We were able to serve 30 families with uh, supply drop kits. We were able to give them oh. gas cards, food cards, uh, backpacks with hygiene kits, supplies, PPE, those types of things, um, all gearing up for a, a fall feast slash Thanksgiving um, event. We are also just selected by the Seahawks as their uh, salute to service charities of the year. Oh, congratulations. That That is fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> I know you're fantastic. in like, Chicago, so the Bears are probably bigger there, but like, <laughs> you, you, most people at least know the Seahawks, so there's that. <laughs> well, we pray for the Bears here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the but, country is feeling that too, don't worry. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, so, you well, know, I one hope of, that in the last... everyone will join us. We're actually going to have an extended conversation about disparities in care for veterans on Tuesday, October 20th um, at 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 12 Central. Um, you can find more information on that at veteranspolicy.org. Okay, but Lindsay is going to help us lead that conversation on how we can make sure that uh, minority veterans um, are getting the care that they need, especially amid COVID-19. Okay, great. Veteranspolicy.org. I'll be on that station tonight <laughs> looking at that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what I'm going to do, so that's Tuesday, October 20th. That sounds like a, a great time. Why don't you close us out? Uh, give us what people need to know as a quick uh, hit, um, you know, what, uh, you know, the, the 
uh, email address or your uh, any kind of uh, you know web address that you'd like them to go to or any phone numbers that are important. But what is it in a nutshell? What do you want people to know about MVA? Well, go to uh, veteranspolicy.org. Oh, I'm sorry, Lindsay, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're up. Oh, I was just going to say, um, please go to veteranspolicy.org. You'll find more information about uh, MVA uh, through our discussion on Tuesday. But really, we need folks to be um, looking at the White House, at President Trump, at Congress, because 13.4 million Americans are going to be losing their unemployment benefits at oh, the end of this year. Yes. Tens of millions could be losing their job-based health care insurance. And that's going to have a huge effect, not just on, um, mm-hmm. you know, everyone, but specifically veterans. Again, okay. get to know uh, your veteran status now. Mm-hmm. Uh, get to know where your VA okay. is because you don't want to be okay. put in a position where you need health care. Okay, uh, Brett. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.